this morning, I want to look at what we need to know to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Not so much our living goal, but our learning goal. This will neither be comprehensive nor exhaustive. I'm not going to tell us everything we need to know, and what I mentioned, I'm not going to tell us everything we could know about that. But my friend, Dan, from over at Lilburn, likes to say there's three things we need to keep in mind when we do a Bible study. They are context, context, and context. And we, our living goal, our learning goal, comes from the context of Colossians, excuse me, Philippians 2, verses 16 through 18, or 12 through 16. And that comes from the context of chapters 1, verses 27, through chapters 2, 18, which comes from the context of the whole book of Philippians, which comes from the context of the visits, the missionary journeys, which is from Acts, which has from its context the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which leads us back to what he told to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, that all of the scriptures, the writings and the prophets and the law, were about him, which leads us back to Genesis 3.16, which is the, the beginning of the Bible. And the point I want to make from this is the first thing we need to know is our Bibles. A hundred years ago, our American restoration tradition that we, some of us, many of us are a part of, were known as the people of the book. We spoke where the Bible spoke, and we were silent where the Bible was silent. Last week, I asked Marlon if he would be willing to give people, as you know, his profession requires he remember things, if he would be willing to give us some tips on how to remember things. And he was glad. He said he would be happy to do that if anyone would ask him. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that the first thing that they taught him in acting school was not, don't think you can't do it. That didn't cross anybody's mind to think that somebody who was going to be an actor would believe that they couldn't memorize lines. So why do we, as Christians, say, well, I just can't remember book, chapter, and verse? You've defeated yourself from the beginning. So think from the beginning, you can remember this. And I'm not saying that we need to remember the whole Bible to memorize it, but we need to have enough scripture in our repertoire to be able to build credibility. Now, when we go to a Bible study, and there is a question comes up, yeah, frequently, most every Bible study, somebody takes out the phone and puts in three words from the verse they remember, and it tells us exactly where it is. But that doesn't build credibility. Knowing your Bible builds credibility. And I think the reason Marlon was so willing to give advice was because he loves what he does. And if we love Jesus, we, it demands that we tell his story. And the Bible tells his story, so we need to know our Bibles. But from the context of where our goals and our theme come from, the structure of chapter 1, verses 27, on through where it ends in 2.18, is called a chiastic structure. It's like the greater than symbol. You have point A, point B, the focal point, point B1, point A1. It builds to the main point, and it reverses back and gives a, an application to the main point. So our structure from verses 
128 and 29, it talks about the opposition. And it says the opposition is due for their destruction. And that is something I can totally agree with. I can get on board with that. The opposition, those who oppose us in Christianity, they're going to be destroyed. I'm all with that. You get over into chapter 2 and verse 15b through 17, and it says they're a crooked and perverse generation. And that means that I am among these people who are crooked and perverse. And I'm not so down with that. It means that I'm going to have to deal with these people. So what he's done, not only is it a chiastic structure, but it's an upward spiral. He's taken it from, they're going to be destroyed, I really like that, to you're going to be in this crooked and perverse generation, which calls me to a higher level. It's a higher energy level for those who know your chemistry. And for those of us who don't know chemistry so well, it's, he's going to kick it up a notch. So the idea is he's taking it to a higher level. In verses 1 and 2, it compares to verses chapter 2, 12 through 15. And basically he says in verses 1 and 2, do these things. And then in 12 through 15, he says, do these things because I'm with you. He takes it to a higher level. Yes, we're doing the same thing, but we have the encouragement of him being with us. And then 5 through 11, we'll get into that later, but that's the focal point. Some say it was a hymn, that he might have used a hymn as he builds this case for the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But did Paul intend a chiasm? I don't know that he did, but it is rabbinical thinking. I don't study the rabbis, but I have studied men who do, and this is the way they thought and the way they portrayed things. And it's just a helpful way of looking at this. So we're going to pick up in chapter 1 in verse 28. I want to say that the first verse of the chiasm is, is a prologue. Verse 27 is a prologue. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But he says in verse 28, In no way be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. I want to look at verse 27 with this verse 28 in mind. First thing I want to notice is the word only. Some may say, no matter what. I think that's how the NIV translates it, that no matter what happens, you conduct yourselves in this manner. And in no way, verse 28, be alarmed by what the opposition does. So no matter what happens and no matter what they do, we're supposed to stay where we are. The word only, and I love my Greek dictionary. I don't speak a word of Greek, can't read any Greek, but I, I was in the fourth or fifth grade when they taught me how to use a dictionary. And I can go and I can look these words up and they're written for me in English. And it gives a good perspective on what the Greek word was and how it's used. And this word that is translated only has the idea behind it of stay in a given place or stay in a given state or stay in a given relationship 
or stay in a given expectancy. And there's a lot of very ephemeral type of thinking that goes into it. I mean, yeah, a place we can understand. A state, well, we're in happiness or we're in Christ. And what is expected of us? Stay in that state. So that's the word that is translated from, that is translated only. Then the word conduct yourselves. That word conduct has as its root the word polis. And you may recognize that word from the middle of the word metropolitan. It has the implication of a citizen in there. It's an an old Greek word, and some of the commentators said by the time this was written, it no longer had that particular meaning. But with what he says about us having a kingdom in chapter 3, verse 20, that we'll go on to later, I think he meant to conduct yourselves as citizens, knowing that we are citizens that are worthy of the gospel. So in 42 BC, there was a battle in Philippi. It was the battle between the Republicans who wanted the Senate to rule Rome and the triumphant who wanted the emperors to rule Rome. There was 190,000 men in this battle. It was a huge battle. And the colony of Philippi was set up by the triumphant who won the battle for the victors, for the veterans of that war. And then there was other people who supported the triumvirate who came in to become the colony of Philippi. So the Philippians would absolutely have understood this idea of citizenship because the colony of Philippi was a miniature Rome. It was Rome away from Rome, so to speak. It had all the structure of Rome, but it was put out in the far lands of the kingdom so that the structure of Rome would be spread out and they would have dominance in the area that they were. So they were a colony to make sure that Rome was present in the area where they were. Most colonies, when they start, are small. They're protected from afar. That is, your army is not near you. So the colonists have to band together They have to stand shoulder to shoulder, and they have to be unified in spirit and purpose and goal. And that's the kind of colony that the Apostle Paul was talking to when he's talking to the church at Philippi. The Roman colony had grown, and it was strong, and they they did what they wanted to because they were the rulers there at that point in time. But when they started, it wasn't as such. And when the Philippian colony of Christ of heaven started. It was not a strong place and they needed to be unified. And that's what he's talking about in the verse, couple of verses of chapter 2. But being called to suffer for Christ's sake, that we are granted, we're given that opportunity, that's not natural. And if you look at what world philosophy tells us that what is spiritual is a burden that God gives us rules world philosophy will tell us that granted to suffer is not normal and we're not supposed to be normal let's look at what 1 Corinthians 2 and and verse 14 says but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, but he who is appraised, he is appraised by no one, for who has known the mind of Christ that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the spiritual things are the things that we need to understand and recognize that we live in a world that is separated from our spiritual world. We're in a world of duality. We need to strengthen our spiritual nature so that we can be the colonists that Christ would have us to be. We need to know we'll have trials as long as we live. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13 tells us that all who seek to be godly will be persecuted. So we will have trials until we die. I want to back up a little bit to chapter 1 of verse 20 when Paul is talking about his expectation of coming to be with the Philippians. But he says that no matter what happens, whether he lives or dies, Christ will be glorified. We have many young people in our congregation here, and I want you to think about this for a long time because you have a long time to think about it. But we need to learn to live and to die with the dignity of Christ. Paul, in verse 17, says that he is ready to die. And he asked the Philippians to share that joy with him, that they should rejoice in the day of the Lord. It was Paul's goal to glorify Christ and his kingdom in all that he did, whether it be life or whether it be death. And that is how we shine as lights in the world, by holding fast to Christ, which is the word that we hold fast to. The kingdom is not really mentioned in this text, but it is through what he says in chapter 3, and also through the word to conduct yourselves as citizens. It's not described in detail, but we are told a lot about the king and how to be citizens. We need to understand and to be able to portray the kingdom of Christ. We need to know from Mark chapter 9 that Jesus says, there are some here who will not see death before my kingdom comes with power. We need to know in Acts chapter 1 that he says, go and wait for the power to come. And then we need to know in Colossians 2 and verse 12 that he says, God has transferred us into his kingdom. So there's a progression that says the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming with power, and that we are transferred into his kingdom. We need to know these things from our Bible. I'm going to go ahead over and look at chapter 3 and verse 20 because that's important to the context of what we're talking about. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of power that He has to subject all things even unto Himself.
God gave Paul and his workers fear. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 8 through 11, he said, we feared for our life. And the Lord did this to us so that we would learn to trust in him and not our lives. And if we are going to be exalted as Christ was exalted, we need to recognize that our life is what we have to lose to get to the exaltation with God in Christ the same way that Christ was exalted. Now back to chapter 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm not going to make any comment on that, but I am going to ask you three questions. What does the cross look like? What does every knee shall bow look like? And what does exalted look like? And think of this in the context of he will transform us, the humble state of our existence, to his glory. Backing up a little further to verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Jesus Christ. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The King James says he did not consider equality not a robbery. And I had to go to my Greek dictionary and find out what he was talking about. And the idea is you're taking an action and making it a state of being. It would be like saying, I am a robbery. And if you think about what Christ was doing and how he humbled himself, he had to think that it would be an affront to God for him not to do this. He, by his inaction, would be thwarting God's plan and stealing salvation from us. Not that we deserve it, but that was how Christ would have viewed this. So he did not refuse God's plan. We do the opposite. I was reminded of the verse that says, from the time of John until now, men seek to take the kingdom by force. That's from Matthew 11 and verse 12. And if you think about what the Jews, the Pharisees, were doing, they were trying to impose what they thought the kingdom should be 
onto what Jesus was teaching. They knew he was there to put the Romans in their proper place and exalt the Jews again. If you think about what the zealots were doing when they would come and make him king, he says in John 6, 15, that they wanted to make him king so he went away. They were trying to do the same thing because they had the same belief and they were in rebellion to the Romans the same way that the Pharisees were, well, in a different way than the Pharisees were, but still in rebellion. And they were trying to take the kingdom. And I don't know if I'm more in love right now with my Greek dictionary or the accounts and the stories from the Old Testament because I was reminded of Naaman, the Syrian king. And he had leprosy. And the little Jewish girl who was taken in captivity was waiting on his wife, and she said to him, if Naaman was with the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so Naaman, who was the king's leader of the king's army, goes and tells the king, the guys over in Israel can cure me of my leprosy. So the king sends 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 talents of silver and 10 changes of clothing and sends it to the king and says, cure Naaman's leprosy. And the king just goes ballistic. What is he trying to do? Start a war with me? Who does he think I am? God, that I can cure leprosy? And then Isaiah, Elisha hears that the king has torn his clothes because he's all upset about this. And he says, send Naaman down to me. I will cure him. And he will know that there is a prophet in Samaria. So Naaman and all his horses and all his chariots goes charging up to the prophet's house. And he stands at the door. And the prophet sends a messenger and says, go tell him to dip seven times in the Jordan. Naaman was furious. He says, well, I thought the man of God would come out, call upon his God, wave his hand over me, and I would be cured. And he takes off and leaves. And then his, his ministers and his servants and his soldiers talk to him and say, Naaman, if he had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? And he says, yeah, but even the waters in Samaria are better than the Jordan. But he humbled himself and quit trying to think of the kingdom as what he wanted it to be, dipped seven times, and he was cured. So the idea is not to make the kingdom what we think it should be, but to take the kingdom and learn what it should be and act accordingly. <clears throat> Christ humbled himself to the point of death. And I'm just going to jump right over to verse 12, which says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is used three other times in the New Testament. It tells slaves how to act to their masters in, in Ephesians. It says of Titus that the Corinthians accepted him with fear and trembling. Now, I don't believe that Titus was a bulked up Taekwondo superhero that caused the fear and the humbling of the Corinthians, but they humbled themselves and listened to the word of the Lord the same way that Naaman did. And then Paul and 1 Corinthians says that he taught with fear and trembling. And the reason he was teaching with fear and trembling was because he had a sense that there might be a failure. And if we think about Christ, 
We don't think of Christ in the terms of there might have been a failure. But what was going on at Gethsemane? When he was praying, let this cup pass from me. Please let this cup pass from me. There was the possibility of failure in Gethsemane. And we don't think about that because when he tells Peter, I could call 12 legions of angels, that would have been the end of it. Salvation for man would not have happened. Man would have been destroyed. So there was that possibility. And that's the idea behind fear and trembling. Is we need to know as we go through this that yes, we do have the possibility of failure. And we need to strive ever so not to let that happen. That we don't thwart God's will. That we don't let God do what He wants to do with us by being rebellious to Him. Have this attitude in yourself from verse 5. I'm going to compare that over to verse 14. Do this without grumbling. Try that for a day. I'll go ahead and get us started off. That's not easy. And thereby, I have grumbled about not grumbling by saying it's not easy. So, it's not easy, but I'm going to work on it. Verse 1 of chapter 2. I'm paraphrasing. There is encouragement in Christ. There is consolation of love. There is fellowship of the Spirit. And there is affection and compassion. So make my joy complete, having the same mind united in spirit on one purpose. And then in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness. From the womb, we're selfish. We come out of the womb. We can do nothing for ourselves. We can't fend for ourselves. We can't feed for ourselves. We can't feed ourselves. All we can do is cry and say, give me. And if nobody gives to us, we're doomed. But we're selfish from the womb. But Christ, he emptied himself. I think the King James says he made himself of no reputation that whatever he was didn't matter it was not to be spoken of he was as far from Naaman as you could possibly be Naaman charged up there saying I know how this is going to go Christ did what he was supposed to do without the benefit of the miracle of healing that Naaman got. He emptied himself. I'm going to go to verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My first thought on this was if God is at work in me, I should be doing work similar to God. And that is a higher calling. That's the higher energy level we were talking about earlier. That it is more than we could possibly do, but we need to have that idea 
in our minds that he is calling us to do work like his son did. But it's an upward spiral of God working in us. He starts in chapter 1 in verse 6 and says, God began this work and I'm confident that he'll complete it. And then here in verse 13 he says, God is working in you. And then when we go over to chapter 3 in verse 20 and 21, it says that he will transform us and it will be by his power that these things are done. And then when we get over to verse chapter 4 and verse 7, he goes even further and says, this power that I'm working in you with is beyond any comprehension that you have. It spirals upward. But that's great comfort for us. He gives the work. In 2 Timothy, he tells us to be diligent or to study, to accurately handle his word. He tells us in chapter 3 that all scripture is inspired so that the man of God may be equipped for good works. And then he gives us the suffering. The suffering that we're granted. I don't know if you know anything about metallurgy and tempering, but metal is tempered to make it harder. Imagine, if you will, a hardened, tempered sword versus a sword of unhardened metal, say perhaps bronze. And the man with the hardened, tempered sword swings and hits that soft metal sword. If it doesn't shear it in two, it's going to bend it. And you try running somebody through with a bent sword. So this tempering, this heating, this crucible is for our own good. It doesn't feel good. The book of Hebrews tells us that he disciplines those whom he loves, but for the time, it's not pleasant, but it's going to be for our salvation. So we can have this confidence that he started the work in us, and he will complete it if we so let him. We're given a task and an example. I want to compare verses 27 of chapter 1 and 22 of chapter 2. We'll go back and he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in chapter 2 he says, speaking of Timothy, but you know of his proven worth that he has served me in the furtherance of the gospel. So this word, worth. Two different words, two different meanings. The first one, it deserves equality. It's comparable to. It is suitable. The second one, the one used of Timothy, it's tested. It's approved. It's trusted. So, Timothy, this soap cleans. You, us, you guys, clean like soap. Very similar contact, context, just a different word. One's proven, one has to prove. So that is the task that we're given. Timothy is our example to imitate. And what were his attributes? 
chapter 2, verse 20, he had concern for the Philippians. He was the only one who would have concern for the Philippians. And as the preachers like to say, that will preach. He was the only one that Paul could send. He had Christ's interest in heart, at heart, verse 21. And then, of course, in chapter, or verse 22, he had the furthering of the gospel. A final word, both literally and figuratively. It's an American word. Yes, not English, American. The word is esteem. I looked it up, I about cried, said archaic. The word used to be used like this, but now it means something different. Now it means both in noun and verb form, high regard. You have high regard and I will highly regard you is how the word is now used. The old way of using it, the noun was a value, a worth. The verb was to appraise, to make a judgment, to have an opinion. This is how we need to look at esteeming others more highly than ourselves. We realize it's a value and an appraisal or a judgment that makes it easier. Paul's exposition on love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 ends with faith, hope, and love. And of these, love abides. That is, love lives on. When we see Christ, when we see Jesus, we'll no longer have faith. We won't need to have faith. We'll see. We'll no longer have hope. We'll have possession, or He'll have possession of us. Faith and hope will be gone, but love will abide. We have a hope and a kingdom, and every bit of that hinges on humility. So let humility abide. And that's all I have for you this morning. If you have spiritual needs or questions, talk with any of the men in this congregation. We do have wise biblical men. So ponder on these things. Let us sing.